You're listening to Real Folk with me, Joe Burke. Hello and welcome to Real Folk. And my guest today is the delightful David Shackleton. He is an actor, a translator. You started acting at what age? As a teenager, I definitely wanted to train as a professional actor, but I was dissuaded by my father and other people from doing that for the various usual reasons. But the main reason was that I was a very good linguist and everyone, everyone said I should go to university to study languages. And I didn't put up enough of a fight, so I, uh, I decided that if I had to go to university, I would apply to Oxford and Cambridge, thinking that I wouldn't get in. I did, I got into Oxford, so it scuppered my plans for training as an actor. And was it something you felt that you wanted to pursue when you finished, or did...? Well, um, no, I, I didn't think it was possible, you see. Uh, I just assumed that because I'd had no training at the, you know, proper dramatic training at the age of 19 or 20 or 21, that I'd missed the boat. I just assumed it. Yeah, I think lots of people and do. Uh, yeah, and I didn't push it any further. And so you, you carried on uh, after uni and became a professional translator then, or was that later? Well, translation was only a minor part of my work to begin with. Initially, I was much more of a language teacher. So we should probably tell the listeners as well that it's, um, I've, I think, quite unusual. You, many, many languages. So uh, Arabic, French, German, Italian... Well, <laughs> I, I, I've never found it difficult to pick up a language. I think once you've got the hard wiring in your brain suitably aligned, it becomes much easier. And I think all linguists will tell you this, that uh, they say foolish things like the first dozen are the most difficult and after that it's easy. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> um, you, you, uh, in my experience, you, if you've learned one or two or maybe three quite thoroughly, yeah. the rest the rest are easy. But um, uh, there, there are many languages that are hellishly difficult compared with the Western European languages. Um, and only when um, when I was actually working in Hungary, about uh, actually it was eight years ago, I started to learn Hungarian. Um, which was a great pleasure because Hungarian is totally unlike any Western European language. It's not related to any of them. And um, I, I had great, great fun learning Hungarian. So mm. you can add Hungarian to the, to the list as well now, then? Well, let, let's be careful. Hungarian <laughs> is... Let's be careful. Hungarian is so different from your average Western European language if you don't practice it constantly, you lose it. Right. We are so lazy because the majority of countries speak English. We are notoriously terrible at bothering to learn a language, even before, like you said, just to ask for a cup of coffee or directions well, when we get there. Well, uh, I have to stop you there, Joe. Uh, when you said to me, we are too lazy to blah, 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 uh, my view is merely you're repeating the statement that you've heard all around you all your life. It's not... I've delivered lectures on this subject quite recently. Uh, it isn't that the English are lazy uh, when it comes to learning foreign languages. Uh, my, my, my view or my thesis is that English people are demoralized by the chaotic nature of their own language. English is unlike any other language that we can learn. 
for various accidents of history and mistakes and misunderstandings. English is an absolute hodgepodge and confused mess of um, different sources. English has been like a mongrel picking up bits and pieces here, there and everywhere. It's not like French or Italian, which is a much purer language. English is a, a rag bag. And the spelling and pronunciation makes it even worse. And so you think that that's confused us enough to put us off ever trying to learn anyone else's language? Oh, I'm absolutely convinced of it. That's so interesting. Unless people grow up linguistically aware, they assume that other languages will betray them and trip them up as English does. And that's not the case? Um, No, absolutely not. It's completely different. The, the, The rule in... I mean, I know quite a lot of European languages, and I know of other languages, like African languages, which use European letters. And the standard rule in any language I've ever heard of is that what you see is what you say. But not in English. No, absolutely (laughs) not. So kids grow up at a very early age. They grow up bewildered and defeated by their own language. And all around you in England, you hear people say, oh, I'm a poor speller, or how do you say that, or mispronouncing this and mispronouncing that, because they don't have spelling as a guide. Because if you are Italian, you know how to pronounce a new word, even if you've never seen it before, because the, the rules, rules are the are same. Firm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the same in, Ger- same in German. I don't know the why that's language- never occurred to me, but oh, and it probably doesn't occur to any other English people very often either. No, no. When, when, I, when I explain these things to them, how it comes about that English is such an appalling language. <laughs> uh, whereas if an English person goes to, go to a, a small town somewhere that you've never heard of, for example, this little village in Cheshire, where I come from, is spelled P-E-O-V-E-R. How would you pronounce it? Hover? Well, this is the whole point. I can, I can, ask, I can ask you how it's pronounced. I, I wouldn't do this if I was Italian or German. Because but, it would be uh, one way. But, but I ask you, how would you pronounce it? Because the spelling does not tell you. Put me out of my misery, David. Well, how do you well, say it? Well, in Cheshire, it's pronounced Piva. Oh, Piva. Okay. Yeah. But, but you, you had a choice. Do I, I did. Do I... Um, do I emphasize the E or emphasize the O? But you have absolutely no guidance. I thought it was a double bluff, you see. I thought if the, no, if the no, E no, comes no. first, it's bound to be Pover. <laughs> no, no. But the, the, the point is that it, there's no guidance. There's no. no way for you to know. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I think that the English language is very undemocratic. It's so interesting. And the interesting aspect of that for me was when I said, oh, you know, we're... Because we are, and we do perceive ourselves as lazy for not tackling other languages. Well, but yes, yes, but it's, it's, I don't it's want. A circular, it's a circular argument. Mm. You hear people saying that, and you think it's okay to repeat it. Yes, that's true. It's so true, and you you say it without thinking, and and not just say it. Actually, I feel it. I I definitely feel it when I go to other countries, and I am one of those people that does buy a fra- a, a phrase book because I always feel that it's wildly insulting to rock up at somebody else's country and just expect them to communicate with you on your level, you know. Yes. Well, there's another aspect at work here. Have you ever seen the film A Fish Called Wanda? Yes, I love it. 
Well, it's a long time since I've seen it, and I, I, I don't remember it very well. Uh, but there is one part that I do remember. Uh, I think it's when John Cleese is talking to um, Jamie Lee Curtis about, about living in England. And he says something like, you can never understand the depth of an Englishman's fear of embarrassment. Right, yeah. That, he says something very strongly yeah. like that. So the Englishman, according to him, is motivated by a desire to avoid embarrassment. And I think this plays a great part when people are trying to speak a foreign language. They, they fear that they're going to get it wrong. And, and be laughed at, yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, that bedevils people as well. Yeah. Which language out of them all is your favourite? Do you have a favourite or that you lean to? Well, in a way I do. Actually, it's the very first one I learned in school, which is French. Although I don't speak French as well as I do German. But it's somehow uh, a kind of... Um, Oh, a veneer of elegance is attached itself to French. And You're I right, get, I yeah. Just, I just get more pleasure out of being fluent in French and conversing in French than I do in German, even though I'm much better at it in German. Yeah, it's a very, um, well, it's a sexy old language, isn't it, for one thing? Well, yes, it's, uh, yes but of course, whether it's sexy or not is very much in the ear of the listener. Oh, yep, yeah, true, true. Yeah. So, I, I, in many ways, I find French infuriating, uh, even worse than English. I find English infuriating, but worse than English because most of the common everyday words are extremely short and spoken extremely fast. And without a lot of practice, I find French actually very difficult to understand. I can speak it, but I can't understand what people say back to me because I've had no, uh, no, had, had no practice for a long time. Yeah, because you have to get an ear for it, don't you? That, that yeah. is the tr- that's the trouble when you go with a phrase book, armed with a phrase book, yeah. into, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, on holiday. Yeah. You've worked out how to communicate, oh, yeah. but you can't necessarily yeah. understand what they're saying. So, <laughs> Well, in any language that you try and speak, it's important learn a couple of key phrases. One is, I speak a little of language X, but I understand nothing. Yes. I, I say that in every language that I can speak. I think if I, I think if I could just learn in every language, I understand nothing. That would cover me. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. But you can say I can speak a little, because uh, yes. listening and converting is an entirely separate skill being able to organise your thoughts in a, in a foreign language. Yes. It's a different skill altogether. It's not the same. No. And do you feel but, that you just were sort of born with that ability because being sort of naturally good at uh, linguistics? Well, we're all born with that ability. That is, that is the great um, uh, surprise. Every human being is born with an instinct to learn the language that he or she hears around him or her. We're all born with this instinct for language. And either some people lose it as you get as you grow up, or some don't, and I never lost it. Yeah. And so were your so family... It's not, true. It, it's not true that I have a special talent. What is true is that it didn't die. Or you didn't allow it to? You had an interest no, in it? No, I was enough. just interested. Yeah. yeah, I was interested. And did that interest come from anyone in the family, or was that just something that starts with you? Well, that is a bit, uh, that's an interesting question. I don't really know. I know that my mother 
learned German during the Second World War. She had a course book and she went to a course laid on by the local authority to learn German. And do you know what her reason was? No. In case the Germans won. Oh, seriously? So they were, they were seriously giving people... I don't know whether that was the reason the course was put on, but she told me that she was learning it in case the Germans won. So who was funding those lessons? Hitler? No, no, the local authority. (laughs) No, I know, but it just sounds, it sounds almost defeatist. Well, it is defeatist to suggest that a country well, learns. No, 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 it's not. It, it, it goes back to what we are saying is that we are lazy because everyone speaks English. The, the fact that everyone, which it's not true that everyone speaks English, but that, that you think everyone speaks English puts English people at a, an extreme disadvantage. Yes. It's, it's an extreme disadvantage. If you only speak your own language, then you're always reliant and someone else choosing to speak English to you. And if they don't want to, they can speak Portuguese or Spanish or Greek in your, in your presence and you don't understand the word. Yeah. So not, not knowing other languages is a very, very big disadvantage. It's most English people seem to not regard. No, and it's a really, it's a really good point. It's, I mean, it is absolutely the, the case. It's a massive disadvantage. But we, yeah. I don't know. I mean, at school, I mean, I was taught French for and I, t- I actually took French and Spanish but I mean I, mm. I don't remember a word of it because I didn't carry it on after that oh, and I yeah, think most yeah. people don't I mean I know That's the odd true. phrase but there's no yeah. sort of um, encouragement to keep those things when really actually yeah. a language yeah. is worth very much worth keeping because you know most people want to travel in their life yeah. it wasn't taught Thinking back to my education, it wasn't taught in a way. It was taught as a as a an exam and something to pass, yeah. rather yeah. than something that culturally was of benefit to you long term. And just going back to the point that you, that you mentioned, your mum was taught German during the war yeah. in case yeah, yeah. the Germans won. Um, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard that. <laughs> Well, you've heard it now. Yeah, I have. I wonder if other listeners have had the same thing of their parents or grandparents or, you know, I just find that extremely interesting. You're listening to Real Folk with me, Joe Burke. This would ordinarily be an advertising break, but as I don't yet have an advertiser, why not check out standingoncustard.com where you can buy all four of my children's books plus my adult comedy book about online dating, all delivered free and signed by me. Standingoncustard.com. Back to the show. When did you decide to try acting in a more professional, earning a living capacity? Well, let, let, let me answer your question in a slightly different way. Um, uh, when I was at university, remember I had wanted to uh, study drama at Radar or at London. Uh, I slowly fell into a nervous breakdown and I've had several nervous breakdowns in my life and the one at university in the second year I tried to end it by suicide which in which I was unsuccessful because I'm here now. But the, the, the crucial thing was and it, it rumbled on for a decade was that, um, was that I was an un, uh, undisclosed gay man I didn't realise it properly I was afraid of it no there. And the other thing was that I should have always been on the stage. These were the two sort of key facts of myself 
which I had somehow, for reasons I still don't understand, had buried and denied. When I left university, um, within a very short time, I was married to a German. Right. So just go back. So, but when you were yeah. at university, you knew you were gay. No, then. I can't say that I knew it because I didn't understand it. I just knew that I was attracted to other men and boys, but I didn't know what it meant. And when I had a nervous breakdown, I went into a mental hospital in Oxford, and the psychiatrist said to me, "What do you think is wrong with you?" And I said very quietly, "I think I'm a homosexual." And he said to me these classic words, which I've never forgotten. He said, I shouldn't worry about that if I were you. Most young men think that. Now work out, what does that mean? Most young men think that. That means most young men think that they are gay, but don't worry about it. That's, a, that's an incredibly unhelpful statement. Yes, but it was only a year or two after uh, sexual activity between men uh, uh, age 21 and over was made legal. You have to think of it in the context of the times. Mm. It had only just become legal with very many restrictions, and I don't think that the mental health profession had caught up with it and knew what to do. No, you're probably right, yes. It was very new. So that's what the doctor helpfully said. Did yes. did he give you any suggestions or any medication, or what was his... It was never mentioned again. Right. It was never mentioned. And so, being a, a, a quick-witted and reasonably clever young man, I interpreted what he was saying to me as, as this, uh, that most, most men have feelings of attraction to other men, uh, but they do nothing about it. They find the right woman, they get married, they settle down, have children, and live happily ever after. That shows you how naive I was, doesn't it? That's yeah. What I, that's what I interpreted it as meaning. And that's, that's how I conducted my life for quite a while. But I think you were not alone in that because I think, no, you no, know, no, no, hundreds alone. and thousands of, of men did at that time. It's all very well saying not alone, but you are alone if you're not in contact with anyone who's having the same experience. And I was alone. I just didn't understand. And so, so you um, didn't have, did you not have any uh, friends or school chums or anything that you would, could speak openly No, to? I never did. I never did. No. Yeah, I never did. Or family. In some ways, uh, in some ways, uh, I'd like to repeat something which has been told to me in recent years. It is in some aspects of life, I am not the sharpest knife in the drawer. <laughs> well, you yeah. can't be good at everything, David. No, no, well, that's what I tell myself. It's a kind of a con <laughs> consolation, isn't it, really? They're certainly not good at working out the nitty-gritty of interpersonal relationships. Yeah, but that's life, isn't it? And I think that's why these real folk interviews and chats, really, they're not interviews, are important because the reason I've started doing these is for that very reason, is that yeah. people don't always have someone to talk to no, or someone exactly. no. to to express how they might be feeling or find out other people feel the same. And I, mm. I think what you've just said is completely right. I said, you know, you weren't alone during that period. But... Of course, you are if you if you feel isolated. Well, exactly. I was alone. I was alone. Yeah. And it, I mean, the word alone has many different meanings. Sure. And I was definitely alone. It doesn't matter that there were other people going through the same thing. I didn't know who they were or where they yeah. were, so I was alone. Yeah, and I mean, it's the same with depression. You you know, I've suffered on and off over the years with depression, and you know thousands of other people do, but it doesn't stop you from feeling alone in that as well. No, so, it doesn't. Did you... 
feel under pressure then at that time to conform, basically, then? Uh, no. Uh, um, well, certainly not from my family. If there was any pressure, it came from me. My mother, uh, there's no encouragement whatsoever to any of us to get married. That's interesting because most most people were at that time. That was kind of just what, even now, it's still kind of what you do. And so you came out of the doctors completely confused, I assume, and uh, and set off on a path of, I suppose, what most people call normalcy, isn't it? It's a, um, not that there is a normal. We all really know that, but you know the the seeking out a partner and in this case a, a female partner despite how you really felt and um, getting married and having children I assume. There were so many ways in which we were not suited. The mere fact of me really being gay was probably the least of the problem. Yeah. Uh, this, and was uh, she aware of that? She was told that she just like me chose to bury it. Yeah. Now to all those listeners out there do not bury your feelings. No and I was just, that just brings yeah, and, and that's another reason for these podcasts, because you can't bury how you really feel. And yes, yes, that's if you right. I do think that, yeah. try for any length of time not to be true to yourself and, and the things you want for yourself and the things you've always wanted, you know, you can de- you can deny yourself those things, but ultimately they damage you. Yes, that's right. It's not very well trying to bury your feelings because you feel that they're inappropriate. But we'll find, in my experience, they find you out in the end and drive you by. Yeah. So when you were, when did you decide to take to the stage again in full thrust? Well, okay. Right. Well, professionally, about 11 years ago, but about five or six years before that, I walked past an amateur theatre in the centre of Nottingham and saw this sign outside saying, open auditions for pantomime. Excellent. And it suddenly struck me, this shows you how easy it is to bury feelings, it suddenly struck me, my God, David, I said, that's what you've always wanted to do, you've always wanted to be in a pantomime. Um, And and I sort of buried the whole notion. So I did audition. And And so how old were you? uh, I'd be, well, this would be um, 15, 16 years ago, so let's say I was 60. So you're a 60-year-old guy wandering past the local playhouse, says open auditions for the pantomime, and in you trot? Was it as simple as that, or did you...? Yes, it was as simple as that. I just said, oh, I'll do it. I'll audition. Um, and so I auditioned. <laughs> and when, it, when the audition finished, they said, well, Mr. Shackleton, they said, that was very nice, thank you very much, but we think that you stand out very badly in our chorus of 60-year-old girls. This is what we're really, really trying to... <laughs> Recruit. <laughs> but in the in the auditioning panel, there was a woman who saw me who thought I'd be ideal for her next production, which was a stage production of Oscar Wilde's story, Lord Arthur Savile's Crime. And from that day onwards, this thing got better. Because you know, people liked my voice, they liked my acting. I had no qualms about learning the lines. I knew I could learn the lines. I never had any doubts about that. And I got other good parts. And then one day, I saw an advert in the theatre for a professional amateur production of King Lear. Nice. A little voice told me in the head, you must audition for this. So I did. And they gave me a small role of a gentleman. 
But in the task, all the task was professionally trained actors, not working professionally, but it was professionally trained actors except me. And the woman playing Goneril overheard me saying, well, I'll never be satisfied with amateur theatre again, because she was professionally so I was rehearsing with all she said. You should audition for my agency in London because we're always looking for old men like you. <laughs> well, that, was, that was music to my ears. So I did audition for that agency and I got in and that's how I got into professional lessons. You went on from there and you've done some some amazing work. I was looking at your... Uh, there's a For those that don't know, dear listeners, there is a... Um, a directory called Spotlight for Actors, and I had a quick sneaky peek at Dave's to see what he's been up to. And um, you've been in The Crown, I saw. Yes, oh, yeah, on television, yes, The Crown. Yeah, small part, but I was in The Crown. Yeah, that's yeah. quite a good one, isn't it? I've never yeah. seen it, but I, I hear tell it's very good. Um, and I spotted, because I love the book, I've never seen the film, but The the 100-Year-Old That Jumped Out of the Window. The 100-Year-Old Man, yes. I had a wonderful role in that. Oh, you know the book. Yes, I'd read the book years ago, and mm. when I just saw it, just reminded me of the book straight away. It just gave me that real warm feeling. Well, I, I, I um, Herbert Einstein, who was the the, the, the the bosom pal of the lead actor. It's such a warm, heartfelt tale. Yes, I love yes, it. yes, yes. Well, oh, that was that was a fun, that's why I learned Hungarian because we filmed in Hungary. Oh, amazing! Mm. We filmed amazing. in Budapest because most people when they have ambitions to, to be an actor, and even if they've left it late, A, it's never too late, is it, really? That's the, Apparently that's not. The, no, apparently not. No. <laughs> but B, you do have to have a secondary way to make a living because, you know, 99% of us are out of work at any given time. Oh, so you do have yeah, to create yeah. your own work yeah. and uh, have something to fall back on. So for a good portion of your life, you were, you were not doing... What you wanted to do, you were not. Oh being yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. You, oh yes, yeah, more than half. Yeah, uh, and then you had this turnaround, which actually was was more forced upon you. You didn't really want to get divorced. No, no, I didn't um, want that. No. But actually, now in hindsight, maybe that was a good thing because that pushed you into making some decisions about the direction you did want to go in. So it's given me the freedom really to expand and not be bound by. The, the, the shackles of a, an incompatible relationship, I think, is a very important thing. But then, quite apart from that, lovely experiences in the theatre and filming, making films, it was, I absolutely hate doing an audition and then hearing nothing after it. I know, but that's the, that's you know that. the story you know that. of our lives, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But actually, I did cast for something last week. I cast for a, a commercial, and today I got an email from the casting director, who shall be nameless, thanking me for doing, saying, and unfortunately, they weren't going to choose me. It's a long time since anyone has had the decency to write like that. That's unheard of. Well, it used not to be. When I started, um, you used to get quite a lot of feedback from casting directors, whether it was yeah. plays or films. You did. You, you got it. But that's just died out. Yeah. And... What words of wisdom would you have for listeners, or even for your for your younger self, if you could go back and have a quick word? Listen to your feelings. Listen very carefully to your feelings. Listen to what your body is telling you. Uh, don't let your head rule your heart, or, or at least not too much. 
it's so very well that you had to do your heart on other occasions, but basically it's your feelings about yourself are far more important than your preconceived notion in your head of what you should be doing or how you should live. So you, you must be open to what your feelings are telling you. That's my word of wisdom for me. So thank you so much for sharing your story, David. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. And I'm sure, and I, well, I, I, I hope that the listeners will find some of your sage advice helpful and, you know, your, your story will resonate with them. Well, I guess uh, my, my message, my message, don't do what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Should we put that on your gravestone? <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't do what I did, yeah. Thanks for listening to Real Folk with me, Joe Burke. 